0: To the Buddha, the blessed one, perfectly awakened, I bow my head, I take my refuge. To the Dhamma, the teaching, perfectly expounded. I bow my head, I take my refuge. To the Sangha disciples, I chant this praise. I bow my head, I take my refuge. All of us come to this teaching with our different stories, histories, fantasies, assumptions, projections, expectations. We come from different worlds, and we come like pilgrims because we're thirsty and this is a place from which we can drink from which we can get comfort where we can find meaning where we can find peace there's so much potential here and the work of finding peace depends at every step on how much we're willing to let go and how much we're willing to offer. And you might wonder, well, what do I have to offer? Everything. Starting with coming here. Coming here is already a big offering. Leaving the comforts of home, of your good companions, friends, security, to an unknown place, to mostly unknown faces, to a schedule imposed from without, and being willing to follow that and be part of that. That's like entering a great stream right there. And it is. It's an energy of empathy to quote our friend. And in this loving atmosphere, we all make the same type of journey. It's a journey inward. And the inward journey can be very scary because we don't know where that will lead us. We don't have a map We do have tools and we have the map that the Buddha gave us, but we don't have GPS. (laughs) Although, whenever people try to find our hermitage in Perth, Ontario, with their GPS, they get lost. (laughs) That's because the, the name of the township was changed a few years ago, and the only accurate record of that is a map. A physical map. But what we're using is our natural intuitive understanding that what the world is promising us doesn't work. If we've believed it for 20 years, by the time we're 30, we might not be believing it anymore. By the time we're 40 we might not be believing it anymore. By the time we're 50, we're not going to be believing it anymore. By the time we're 60, we really don't believe it anymore. By the time we're 70, we believe something else, hopefully. We don't have to believe. We know something else. There's something else to this story. And the answer is not out there. It's in here. The Buddha himself made this journey, but he was a prince. And he lived in tremendous luxury. And because he saw the emptiness of all that was laid out for him by his most generous father, he walked. At a young age, he walked. And he walked into the forest to search, not in the forest, but within himself, because the forest, because the natural world, uncontrived by human beings, full of its sounds and smells, and the empty spaces at the roots of trees, there he could practice. There he could seek within his own heart. And there he found the truth. That's, for us, a great invitation. And coming here is, is a kind of walking. It does end on Sunday. But it doesn't. The schedule gets put away, and you go back, into the world, but there is a possibility to take from this experience, from this beginnings or continuation of a journey that we've all begun long ago, there is a possibility to take something precious back into life, so that the life that we've been leading out there is no different than the life we've been leading in here. On the externals, it might be different. But within us, if we can change to that extent that we never stop giving our attention to what is most important in life as human beings. If there's nothing else we take back into the world with us but that wish to devote our energy, our attention, our time, our strength, to that, to that priceless gift or discovering what we we know is sacred within us, the ability to understand and touch the place of truth. If that's all we take with us, that's everything. Everything. To really share it. There's a wonderful verse in the Sutta Nipata. There is an island, an island beyond which we cannot go. It is a place of nothingness, a place of non possession, of non attachment. It is beyond death and decay. This is where the Buddha is pointing us to the discovery of that. It's not a place but it's a nothingness and it demands of us to let go absolutely in every way. A place of non-possession or a way Of non possession. So, how do we do that and still live in the world? Because we need the basic requisites and we have to make a living and we have to interact with people, we can't sit around silently walking to and fro. But we can still be pilgrims and we can still hold that place as sacred. And keep returning to it as our reference point. Even in monastic life, we have our four basic requisites. We have robes, alms food, shelter, and medicine. We are not breatharians. We require these things to to keep going. But our reference point, our main refuge, our our true refuge, our only refuge, is the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. And at first, that might seem just theoretical, but looking back at my own life, it takes a very long time for the Dhamma for the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha to seep into one's being viscerally at first it's all inspiration just like a marriage I guess you start out being very inspired and in love and then when the cracks begin to show you look around and think I made a mistake there must be something better Or how do I fix this? Instead of the pilgrim going to that place of non-possession, non-attachment and nothingness, we start creating something out of what's in front of us and we forget our pilgrimage. And we believe that somewhere in the world there will be the perfect relationship, the perfect job, the perfect place to live the perfect vacation. One of our supporters came to visit us not long ago, and he said, Aya, please tell me, because you've traveled a lot, where's a good place I can go on vacation? And I said, you're you're in your 70s. Where are you going? You really want to go on another vacation... What are you going to vacate? (laughs) And I felt that I was treading on shaky ground (laughs) because that wasn't what he wanted to hear. Should I go to Portugal or to Ecuador? I'd like to go look at some good ruins. And I I said, we're looking at them. (laughs) (laughs) You're old. (laughs) Fortunately, he's a good supporter. (laughs) And he trusts me. He didn't take it personally. (laughs) Because it's not about the body. I look at myself after working hard for years to study, to learn the chanting, to remember it, to hold the teaching well. Because one gets pushed forward and one has to come out and and lead and teach and present things to people. Then by the time you think you got it all right, you start forgetting it. (laughs) Natural attrition. (laughs) And so I really do come in front of you shaky, trembling from habit, but also because I have forgotten. I do forget, but that doesn't matter because those are just facts. Those are just concepts, theories, conventions. But I never forget the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. And I don't forget what's in my heart. Luckily, somehow, the memory of that, I don't even make an effort to remember it because it's... It's just what's there. That's all I can offer. But if that's all we can offer, that's everything. Because the rest is artificial. It's just like the flowers. I hate to tell you, I'm not (laughs) sure. They're not real. There's one thing that I like to do at the Hermitage. I always like to offer real flowers to the shrine. It's just like offering the real part of me that I can offer, which is the trembling and the shaking and the fear of being something which I can't be. When I walk from the main house to my kuti, my little cabin in the woods, often at night... We have good flashlights because there are wild creatures there. And uh, when people come to visit us and they hear that we, we do this, we walk out into the dark in the middle of the forest and, you know, there are wild animals, they ask, aren't you afraid? And I say, yes, I am afraid. But I'm more afraid of what human beings can do than just succumbing to the kamma, If that's my karma to die in the jaw of a coyote or a bear, so be it. But the evil that human beings can do is much more frightening to me. And the results of the deceit and betrayal and anger that gets played out in every country on this planet, in our own households or places where we work, in our governments, with our own friends sometimes, because we're not able to return to that center point, that island of a refuge within us, which is our true place of pilgrimage. Whenever we get distracted from that, there's the danger. That's much more frightening to me. One of the things you might notice that we do is we eat out of a bowl. And sometimes people come to offer and they give us ice cream and lettuce and many combinations of food all in the bowl. And if you're watching from outside, I don't know how it looks to you, but for me, over the years, it just becomes a receptacle for kindness. And my whole life is sustained through the gifts of others our lives are sustained through the kindness of others so I feel very blessed I feel very privileged because these four requisites that we are offered to sustain the monastic life enable me to continue to live due to the gifts of others because of kindness when I first started going on alms round when I was a solitary nun, I made a determination that at least once a week I would not receive a planned meal. People would come and bring a meal using a rota. Oh, it's my turn, I'll go feed the nun. But at least once a week I said, no, I'm just going to walk on the street and get whatever is given. And in a Western culture, people don't recognize when they see a robe, You could be from the Salvation Army. But alms mendicant does not feature in our culture. And I remember many times, especially when I was living in New Zealand, a cold, wintry day, walking down the street very cheerfully because I'd had six meals, no problem. And I'd stand there, usually I'd stand in front of a, grocery store (laughs) you know you're playing with big odds (laughs) one day actually I was standing that day in front of a bakery it was cold very cold and people were walking by and one woman stopped and she said oh I recognize you you come from that monastery up in Stokes Valley. And I was so happy, I thought, oh great, here's a possibility. And she said, well, it's very nice to see you out here. And off she went. (laughs) And I remember my mind state, there was a a feeling of, well, there goes the meal. (laughs) You know, that's it, it was getting late. And then I caught the thought, because mindfulness is the path to the deathless, this has been drummed in, so much that I immediately caught that thought and I said to myself that's not a blessing I'm not blessing her she greeted me she said good morning it's so nice to see you I was having an expectation I was walking for alms not with an alms mendicant's mind I had this expectation these people should feed me they're supposed to feed me well why? what what on earth would make them feed me? they don't know what I am and so I burned that thought remembering to go to that place of Buddha of awakened mind awakening of loving the teaching and of being in the fellowship of those aspiring for truth what is worthy of a being walking for truth, walking for alms. This is walking for truth. Whether I get food or not, that's not truth. Because if your love is conditional, then it's tainted. So I realized I have to do this without any expectation. Like, give up the meal. Give up even thinking that you're going to get food. And then my alms bowl became empty. The teaching was right there in the empty bowl. Holding my bowl and looking into it and thinking, it's empty, but it's, it's true because my mind is empty of wanting. I'm going to stand here, I'm not going to want anything. I'm just going to bless every person that walks by whether they say good morning or grumble. Like, what's that? I've had that sometimes feel like the next thing is they're going to spit. But yes, not to want them to like me or respect me or even feed me, at least. And wouldn't you know it, the minute my mind was empty, and I was partaking of the blessing of sharing blessings, the man came out of the shop, and he said, what are you doing? I said, I'm standing for alms. I'm a nun, Buddhist nun, and this is how we eat. And he said, oh, I can help you. And he went away and came back with a bag of apples, a whole bag of apples. He couldn't put the whole thing in my bowl. And then it was time to go. I had to return because I had to have a few minutes to sit down and eat the apples before 12. So it's not that, oh well, next time I just better sit there, stand there with an empty mind and I'll get fed. Not like that. But really to let go of expecting anything from the world. But to come to the world with my empty bowl, to come empty, I'm cold, it's winter, this is hard to do, the mind wants to grumble, no, I live Because of the kindness of other people. And I have enough. Six kind people have fed me for six days in a row. Today is the the day of learning what it is to be empty and take that emptiness back because sometimes people would also forget or get the days mixed up and they didn't come. But I was prepared because I had that wonderful teaching. Luckily, my bowl does get filled a lot, or I wouldn't be sitting here. It teaches me, and wearing the robe also is a teaching, because it is not a convenient garment. It's just a rectangular-shaped sheet. And then we have to wrap it, and then hold it together. Basically, we're, we're meant to have only one arm, free. The other one is to hold, it's like a pin, or a safety pin, is this arm. You just always hold it to your body. And even when you bow, the likelihood of the top flap falling to the ground is high. (laughs) So if people are watching and you're trying to hold it all together, then your ego has many opportunities to be chopped to pieces to fall apart to be fragmented and then you have to stick a mic on it (laughs) (laughs) I remember once I went on pilgrimage to Nepal a few years ago after very many years and I had a chance to visit Sayada Unyanapunika who was the first monk that I was able to offer the katina, just the year before I became a nun, one day Sayadaw said, "You should offer katina." I said, "Okay," and I didn't even know what it was. Then he explained it to me, and he helped me get the robes together. And this is the robe offering at the end of our rains retreat. So I went to visit him on pilgrimage. And it was a wonderful treat to be able to see him after so many years and to come and bow and and be, be an alms mendicant in front of this teacher who had only ever seen me as a very young nun in Burma. So there I was, you know, all wrapped up in my robes and with my alms bowl. And during the meal he had a temple, he still has in Kathmandu where he trains Novices from the age of six and up, and so there they all were, filing in one by one for the meal, and the foreigner nun sat opposite them, with my alms bowl, and they looked very natural, bright faces, beautiful, and at the head of the hall sat Sayado, and we did the meal blessing and had the meal and I finished eating and then I very mindfully picked up my bowl folded my sitting cloth as you've watched me do and I was about to leave and suddenly I heard Sayado say fell down I looked and there on the floor was my lap cloth fell down so naturally I felt embarrassed in front of all these young novices you want to hold it all together and then I thought what a wonderful teaching is that no need to try just be like those little kids very natural just smile just glow you've got the Dhamma the rest these are just supports don't have to fold it exactly and carry it exactly and be so prim and proper and perfect and unreal Like the artificial flowers. Just be a real flower. Let the Dhamma fragrance come out of your heart. Whether you remember or don't remember, whether you look good or you look terrible, whether you feel good or you feel lousy, you can always bring a blessing to the present moment. Just letting go and going to that reference point, the island. Beyond which we cannot go. There's nothing more than that. And it's absolutely true. It's there for each of us. It has a power that goes beyond any convention. And it also has the power to illuminate our minds so that we're no longer thinking about what we're going to get. We're just blessing every moment as it comes in the best way we possibly can. We can't do that from the brain. We can only do it from the heart. This is everything. And it's beyond death and decay. Even the falling apart of the body, which is the biggest spiritual test of all, and it's saved for the end. Because there are so many other spiritual tests that we get in life if our eyes are open enough to notice. That by the time we get old, we, we ought to, we could have, supplied ourselves with a lot of practice to be ready for the final letting go, which could be letting go into that island of a refuge and leaving everything else behind because it's death-bound anyway. You can't stop it. If you want to put real flowers on the shrine, then offer your dying, your dying breath, your last faltering breath to the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. And that will have been the best offering